G'day and welcome to Aussie Pets Podcast number two. Today our guest comes from Canine Services International. His name is Brad Griggs and he's dedicated a large part of his life to the world of dogs. From memory, Brad, I recall somewhere there that you've been in the industry about uh, 18 years. G'day, Ed. No, thanks for having me uh, having me on. I was I know this is a, a new adventure for you with this podcast, buddy, but I was stoked to be able to support you in it. So I know how passionate you are about this industry, man. So having known you for a lot of years now, 17, 18 years, something like that, I've, I've been to... Yeah, uh, correctly sort of stated. It's um, well, the business is Canine Services International, right? So it's essentially, yeah, I only do dogs. I'm really grateful that you have, Brad. Uh, you're certainly a source of knowledge. I wonder if you had uh, other pets around you as you grew up, maybe even as a child. What kind of pets did you have? So we had budgies. I don't know that they really count. We had a cat, and it was a former feral cat. First pet I really connected with was like a little um, farm-bred lab cross Kelpie named Cindy. She was my introduction to dogs. She was my family's first dog. So Cindy was actually the very first dog that you had, that you had some connection with. And what did you do with her? I, I don't think anyone's ever asked me what my first dog was, mate. So there's a that's a unique question. A lot of the other folks that I get stuck talking to are like in the dog training industry, right? So I guess they're too busy focused on what you're doing now, whereas... Yeah, it's quite refreshing to even think back that far in my life, man. But we didn't really do anything with her. She lived with us. She lived with us in the family. She wasn't particularly well trained. Um, there was no focus on dog training or anything like that. Um, you know, it wasn't it wasn't something that I don't even know if it was on the the normal radar back then. This is going back. So what? I'm forty three. I reckon we I would have been. Yeah, about six years old when we got Cindy. So, yeah, she was, she was a lovely dog, man. Like, I, I look back at what she had to work out in terms of living with myself and my brother, who were terrorists, and then mum and dad, right? So, you know, she, she did a remarkably a remarkably good job. Um, and she was a lovely dog. I can remember she was the world's best fielder at backyard cricket. My, my brother went to play a shot, and the dog wore the cricket bat in the head, and the dog stopped wanting to field... After that, I don't know why. Um, the same, the same as um, up on my uncle's farm where she came from originally. I can still remember she she was out and um, got together with another dog and decided to chase cows. And um, the cow helped her work out really, really quickly not to chase cows. And we, we never had a problem with it twice. She eventually got that wisdom about cows and cricket bats. <laughs> Oh gee, those were the days. Uh, I was put up on a farm too. Those those were great times when people could uh, actually have a pet and be around them. But recently, there's been a massive explosion in people who uh, actually have not had much exposure to pets. And uh, have you got uh, much experience with regards to that? You mean via COVID? Look, there's definitely been a, a thing with COVID where people are getting lonely and they feel like they want to have a companion. They might actually live on their own. I get that, but can just anybody get a, a, a pet, walk into the pet shop, get your dollars out? Uh, how does that work? What do you have to say about that, Brad, uh, people with pets? No, I don't think you can. And, well, I mean, I understand that I have three dogs of my own, right? And obviously I've been doing this for a long time. 
I certainly understand why people want to add a dog to their life. I can't comment about the cats and the birds and all that stuff. But I can certainly understand why people want to add a dog to their life and I can see the value that it brings. But, yeah, I think in in terms of right or wrong, I I don't know that we can talk that absolutely, but there is absolutely there are some uh, more considered ways that you can go about things, right? So for starters, if if you're looking to add um, a dog to your family, then I don't think it should be a spur-of-the-moment decision, okay? Because that's going to lead you to go for the cutest dog, right? Or if you're really desperate to add that dog, you might just go for the first dog you see. And if you see a dog that's not, like I had a client come in yesterday and his puppy is, he got his puppy at 16 weeks old, basically rescued it from this horrible person that, you know, the, his stomach was swollen with worms. He had dry skin. All his ribs were showing. Like this dog was not being looked after. And yeah, so so people can make these decisions um, maybe a little rashly and wind up with some drama that they didn't want to wind up with later down the track. So uh, if people simply want a dog for companionship, I actually think it's really useful for people to consider getting a rescue dog, just to make it a little bit harder for people, like. If they're dealing with a small, like a smaller type rescue, the type that you find often on Facebook and whatever, the advantage of getting an older dog like that is that you you can put that dog through its paces in terms of testing with someone like myself, dealing with one of those rare groups where the people actually have a sound understanding of behaviour and temperament. You can get a great amount of information about who that dog is and it, regardless of not knowing its history, you can, you can get to understand him or her and... Um, that can put you in a really good position with your family. Like take one prominent organisation uh, that a dear friend of mine works with, it's called Pets Haven. Pets Haven has what is called an 84Y, right? And that's like government talk. That's like, a, a, I guess, a code for a, a type of permit that they have to operate in that space. Yep, so um, if, if you're dealing with a reputable organisation to rehome your dog from, and, and if I may, Ed, I'd like to sort of round that subject out before pushing too far forward. If you've got an 84Y, uh, if you're dealing with an organisation that's got an 84Y, you're offered some more protection, right? Um, and, and they've got a little more accountability. A lot of those organisations are going to have processes in place to vet your situation and have a look at, okay, so you want to get a giant... I don't know, a wolfhound cross Great Dane, which is like 60 kilos with legs 12 kilometres long, right? And you live in a one-bedroom apartment in the middle of Paran, right? They're, they're going to assess that, and and it may be the case that that individual's a high-energy dog, and then they're probably going to say, based on your living situation, that's probably not the dog for you, right? And maybe recommend you towards a personality that a dog with a personality that's going to be a little bit more suited. The other options that you have there are, of course, you can go to a breeder. Now, what makes a breeder? If I say a breeder, I'm going to talk about a breeder that is in some way registered, registered with the council, registered with Dogs Victoria, right? There are some other organisations like, what is it, Master Dog Breeders Association or something like that. I've, I've had real mixed experiences in dealing with people that have got pups through breeders registered there and not elsewhere, but people have issues with dogs from all sorts of sources with breeders. Just because if people are looking for a breeder, then realistically, they should, they're looking for, they should be looking for a certain type of dog. There's a lot of movement in amongst this, but typically speaking, if people are breeding crossbred dogs, 
they're not dog breeders. They're people that have bred a litter of dogs. You have to be really careful if, you, if you're buying very popular kinds of dogs like uh, the Oodles, like a Labradoodle or a Groodle or one of the other Oodle family, right, because they, they're smaller dogs and um, they don't tend to take up so much room and people tend to pay a lot of money for them. So you, a lot of folks end up dealing with really unscrupulous people that are simply crossing two dogs to try and you know, bring themselves some financial reward. And then I, I guess you, you've really got to look at, if you're going to choose a certain breed, you've really got to look at that breed's reputation and say, okay, I'm prepared to take on a dog that lives up to that reputation. So let's take German Shepherds as an example. The German Shepherd is a working dog. And although it's had many jobs over the years, and it's, it's a very versatile kind of dog, so you'll find them in all sorts of roles, you need to understand that if you're going to earn a, own a German Shepherd, a German Shepherd should be hard when provoked. It should be protective of your house. It should be protective of your family. It should be highly trainable. It should be a, like a very emotionally stable, calm, secure dog. Just because that's the reputation and the breed standard doesn't mean that that's how they turn out. That takes a lot of work to realize that potential. If you want to own a German Shepherd, what you can't really easily do effectively is turn around and say, well, I, I want all of that, but I only want 70% of it. So I'll go to someone that doesn't breed for all that. No, you're not really going to someone breeding German Shepherds with good testing standards in place and whatever else. If they're breeding dogs for show, for example, well, then they're really only testing that the dog is a beautiful idiot, right? There's no requirement for the dog to think in the same way. If you're going for a German Shepherd, it's important that you realise that you're going for a working dog in the same way that if you're going to go and buy a Border Collie because they look cute, that's not a really good way. That's not a good reason to buy a Border Collie. Border Collies, Kelpies, cattle dogs, these are wonderful dogs, but typically they're very high energy, right? They're very easily excitable, and the more excitable, the more energy it has, the more effort it takes from owners to actively train these dogs how they would prefer them to behave. Of course, a lot of these working type breeds also carry with them some pretty interesting predispositions towards anxiety. Cattle dogs and Kelpies and um, Border Collies... We see a lot of them that struggle with issues relating to that, and some of that's due to breeding, right? So if you, if you want to own a dog that was bred to herd sheep, that's great. If you're prepared to, pre, to replace that job with something else and you can have a lot of touch points with the dog and you've got a lot of time to invest, then perhaps that dog is right for you. Uh, I have a, a, a buddy, Tony. He's a client of mine. He owns two working bred uh, from, a, a, I believe it's Baloka, the famous Kelpie kennel. He has two working bred dogs that he recreationally sheep trials. And Tony has a young family, two young kids and a missus. And he puts a lot of time into those dogs to make sure that they fit in. He's done a lot of training with me. He's done a lot of training elsewhere. He exercises them twice a day for a significant amount. Um, so, you know, him making that work is, um, you know, it, it's... That's the keys, him making it work. I don't want to discourage anyone from owning any one of those type of dogs, but there's no reason that you shouldn't assume that the that if you're getting a dog of that breed, that it's not being bred to do those jobs for which the breed was conceived. I think, think you're absolutely right there, Brad. 
from my experience, people would be better, and from what you're saying, far better, looking at their expectations for the dog and then looking at the breed and talking to people who are experts in breeding the dog so they know what you're to expect as an outcome from that dog. Then look at exactly how much effort they're wishing to put in to have the ideal dog in their eyes. If people need a dog to do... So expectations, right? People would be well-placed to sit down with a pen and paper and write out in the house... This is how I would like. This is what I would like the dog to do. Don't put down. I don't want. I want my dog to not jump. I want my dog to not whine. I want. Don't put down any knots. Put down specifically what they want the dog to do. How they want the dog to behave. And that list doesn't have to be super complex, but there'll be a few things on there, particularly if you're a young family. And then you've got to understand, it's up to you to teach that dog that you're looking at putting into your family how to do all of those things. In this age of the internet, Brad, there's a lot of people out there who say, oh, that person's a dog whisperer. Or they say, oh, animals understand them really well. They've got clear commands. These sort of things. Do dogs speak human? Can they understand human or... Can we give them a basic vocabulary that we can train every dog to understand? Okay. Now, if you want to teach your dog to do those things, dogs don't speak human. And humans can't speak dog. But what humans can do is, through the process of training, is they can actually build a shared language with the dog it's completely clear to the dog that the dog understands. You're not going to build that by punishing your dog for doing things it shouldn't do. You build that language, you build that communication by patiently teaching your dog what you would prefer it to do. And so that becomes very important. So no, dogs can't speak human. Humans can't speak dog. We can. Humans can take responsibility for teaching the their dog, a shared language that really works, right? And if anyone wants to have a look at um, how that starts, I've got a video on um, on our YouTube channel, which maybe you can put in your show notes, and it's called Markers, and markers are one way that uh, I would argue that they are the predominant way that we start to teach the dog that um, what we like and what we don't, right? So it, it's a Markers are a cornerstone of good communication with your dog. Thankfully, the dog training world in this information age is starting to catch up and that's starting to become more commonplace, the use of clear markers in teaching. That's really fascinating. So we can actually create a language which dogs can understand humans with and people can communicate and have their dogs understand to a certain extent whatever they're saying. Yes, mate, and, and it's, not, it's not only people that are in my position that have devoted a, you know, half their life to it. These are normal people. Everyday people can do this, right? It just requires a little bit of patience, and it's not, it's not very hard. 
you know, pretty much everyone can understand it. Now, if you if your coach is kind of average, if you're dealing if you're dealing with someone who's done a lot of this, and they really understand the subject matter, and they're they're good at working with people, which is important, then um, you're probably going to find the process pretty easy because someone like me breaks it down into little chunks. And this week you work on this chunk, and you learn these three things or five things. You take that home and you work on that, and so it's a it's a process, you know. But if you've got a wee little puppy, your expectations of that puppy have have to be reasonable. Your dog doesn't, your little wee puppy doesn't have the same capacity um, for behaving a certain way that an older dog might, you know. And and even if you've got an older, if you've got a six year old dog, that dog can still learn new tricks. It does get a little bit harder when we run into problem problem behaviours or behavioural issues in older dogs that have have got a, a strong history of sort of exhibiting those behaviours. That's a bit of a different thing to simply training a dog from scratch that doesn't know what it's doing. Brad, I know you spend a lot of time teaching people how to interact with dogs, how to communicate with them so that the dog and the human know what the expected outcomes are. Also, you help people to choose the right dogs and train them. Additionally, what many people don't realise is you've got a vast library and from my memory, there's an absolutely marvellous video that you put out on people with dogs biting them or to prevent, I can't remember what it was called. What was that called, Brad? I think it's about 17 or 18 minutes long. It's a community dog bite prevention resource. We actually had 50,000 views on Facebook. I I want to say something like 200 shares uh, and then our Facebook page got hacked going back towards the start of the year, and I lost years and years of work, including that. Oh, yeah, I remember you telling me about that earlier this year before COVID hit. Uh, have you been able to put it back up again? And would you recommend people watch something like that video? So I would thoroughly recommend that people watch that video. That was that The focus of that is about it is for parents with kids that are going to be around dogs and also um for dog owners and it shows some basic actions that people can take if they're being attacked by a dog the biggest issue with kids and dogs is appropriate supervision and so that video goes through all those factors uh, adequate supervision of kids and dogs because almost all of those situations are pretty easily avoidable so if we if we want to sort of look at what we need to do to avoid that when we need to supervise our kids with dogs and we need to take our responsibility for our own actions around dogs because even though it's often the case that people are unfortunately put in the position of becoming a victim there are some basic things that they can know which again i touch on in that video that can put them a little bit more in control of that situation here's what i tend to find with people whose dogs are the victim of a dog attack right so they've had an 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 encounter with a dog that hasn't gone well for their own dog there's a couple of key things that i see now i do a lot of this work and i'm it'd probably be fair to say that i'm pretty well regarded nationally working in this area a lot of the time what we see is that these people with dogs that um, that wind up on the receiving end of what that dog finds traumatic, and for some dogs that can simply be being squashed by a larger dog. If you know if that dog's got quite a weak constitution, that can really traumatise that dog. And for other dogs, they shrug off like you know really very bad behaviour. And 
whilst genetics certainly plays a role, um, what I see here in my business, almost always the dogs that are worst affected did not go to puppy school. Now, just because you train your dog yourself at home doesn't mean you necessarily do a bad job of it, but for reasons I've already stated, a lot of people tend to do a pretty poor job of it, Ed, because they're a human trying to communicate with a dog, so their understanding of communication is through those human glasses. People like myself are busy looking for what the dog is making of the lesson. And a lot of people need help with that. It doesn't mean you need to go through years of training, but you can save yourself a ton of rubbish later down the line and a ton of bad experience by paying for some professional assistance first. Amen to that, Brad. You're absolutely right. I've attended uh, incidents and the dogs that are involved have never been to puppy school, never been outside of the property, and the outcome can be rather nasty. Best to get in there, get some good advice, and go at least get your dog to a puppy school and get professional training for the life of your dog. Uh, Brad, do you still offer puppy classes? I, I, I don't think you do. Are you doing that at the moment? If I can say, Ed, like, so I don't run puppy schools as at the time of this, um, as at the time of this discussion that we're having, right? Um, and with COVID, I would have to say it doesn't look like that's likely on the cards in, in 2020, right? Um, so we work with people one-on-one. Obviously, you get a lot of advantage out of that. It's like having a personal trainer at the gym for, for sake of an easy, quick description, Um but there are some things that people can look for if they're going to take their dog to a puppy school. Number one, you want to look at the qualifications of the people that are delivering the instruction. The Australian National Kennel Council qualifies their trainers. Where there is a qualification, I think at last check it was like, uh, I want to say two days. So let's say three days to be really charitable. It's not a lot of education. There are other organisations that, that do qualify dog trainers. Uh, there's, a, there's about to be a new... Diploma level qualifications for for dog trainers that is really going to be the ultimate thing in the industry to have in terms of formal qualification in this country. Approved for development, so it is definitely on the cards. It's just not being taught yet. A woman named Kelly Gulliver owns that. There's another course called the National Dog Trainers Federation. It's a certificate three level course, and at least if someone does that course, they don't have an excuse not to know certain basics. I can get you know, really into the weeds on all of that stuff, but I won't. But there's some of the qualifications I'd be looking for. Yeah, I, I think you're right, Brad. With regards to the issues that dogs get, keeping in mind that they've been trained by somebody who may be qualified, how does this happen? Issues that have stemmed from poor instruction. And I don't, I, I, I find it hard to believe that any person would willingly do that to give bad advice. Right, because I, I think that at the end of the day, if you're a vet nurse, you care about animals. So I'm not saying that there's anything malignant there. It's just a, a lack of understanding. And so one of the key things that you'll tend to find in a poor quality puppy class is that there's a big focus on puppies playing together in the class. If you find that in the puppy class you're going to, you have some serious reasons to doubt the curriculum and the quality of the instruction that you're being given because the reason that you take your dog to puppy class isn't for your dog to play with other puppies. The reason that you take your dog to puppy class is because overwhelming, even the skills, the actual skills your dog learns aren't really very important. 
What's important is that dog learns a strong desire to remain engaged with you and remain an active learner in the presence of other dogs. That's the kicker. That's what's missing from the majority of puppy schools out there. And that's what you tend to find in the good puppy schools. People will make of this what they will, and I don't want to appear to be disparaging people, even though there are some I would willingly disparage giving some of the rubbish I've seen. I'm just telling you the facts. And, and when you start looking around at people internationally, domestically and internationally, that actually understand how all of this stuff works and you know, they have some solid insight into how puppies development, how puppies development runs and, and some of the problems that dogs encounter later in life having these dogs that have a huge value in playing with other dogs causes uh, causes or correlates with a bunch of other problems later. Anything else in puppy schools that we should be aware of? The other thing that you would want to look at whilst training your dog um, is easy, it doesn't mean it's simple. There's some thought that needs to go into that if you want to stand your dog the best chance of moving forward. And even no one has to do everything just like I do it or like my friend does it or whatever else, but you know, there's a level of forethought that goes into these things. Another thing, another couple of like red flags that you will find. If you're seeing that your puppy is intimidated at puppy school and simply wants to sit under your legs and avoid the class, right? You don't have very skilled instructors. Go and find a place that's better to study than that. If you're seeing puppies that fail puppy school, no. There is no failing puppy school. All you have to do is attend and do the work. Trainers that fail puppies at puppy school are failures. They're the failure. And people become very disheartened when that happens to them. And oftentimes, I'll be honest, Ed, I haven't seen that the puppies themselves are problems. The problem is the curriculum. It's very boring, right? And there's nothing in it for the puppy. And the puppy just wants to work. But um, it's not to say all blank slates don't have some little imperfections on them. That's that's genetics and, and that's not something that we really worry about when we're sort of committed to a puppy. But these friends of mine, they're very, very close, like uh, in terms of family. They're, they're basically extended family. And they live a little ways away from me. They live about 40 minutes away and um, I've helped them train there are other dogs previously, and the, the woman who got this new German Shepherd puppy, puppy it seems to be a nicely bred dog. Uh, it's a working line dog, so that's, that's a start. And she decided that she would just go to this local one because she's got two little bubs and she's, she's a bit short on time. So because she trained with me before, she rolled into class with this big bag of pre-cut reinforcers for the dog and hadn't fed the puppy. And so she was standing around and... The instructors proceeded to tell them, no, no, we don't use food here. You shouldn't use food. Your dog should just work for you, you know, because you're in charge and whatever else. And she sort of started looking at this stuff and just goes, and she actually left like three quarters of the way through. She goes, I couldn't put up with it anymore. Like she called me the next day and, and said what she wanted to do and said she wanted to come and train. I go, yeah, cool. Why didn't you come here first? She goes, oh, I was just local. <laughs> That's gold, absolute gold, Brad. You know, and then what? She went back to the things that she knew, and the, and the dog was, um, you know, he was really doing a lot of cool stuff, like very early, and just looked at the rest of the world, and he was cool with that. But that dog really wanted to focus on her, and really wanted to work for her, and she didn't have food in her hands to get the dog to do that. The dog believed that he made the food come from her. Kind of doggy magic. 
what you tend to find is too, yeah, if, if you're going to a puppy class and the instructors are telling you not to use food, that's a, a, a fairly poor quality of instruction there, right? So, you know, the focus shouldn't be on your dog playing with other dogs. You should be looking to motivate performances from your dog. The other thing is that if there's not a huge focus in a puppy class on you as a handler being instructed how to expose your dog in both a positive and neutral way to novel things out there in the broader world, uh, then you're probably wasting your time. And if that occurs with either one of the other two, you're 100% wasting your time. And if your puppy, if you, if your puppy class is characterised by all three of those things, then you definitely need to just turn around and walk out the door and go and hit the yellow pages. Well, no one uses yellow pages now, do they, Ed? <laughs> I wish people would go and Google at least a professional instructor. could save so much trouble for everybody, really. Let's talk about the elephant in the room. Uh, currently, we're being affected by COVID-19, and I guess you may be getting affected to some extent by that. Are you still training people? Because I do know you've got a, a massive complex in Baronia uh, where you do offer private lessons. Things are very complicated right now with all of these restrictions. Uh, if, if people... Uh, so, so the easiest way for me to say, uh, say it to people right now is that we'll try and advise people on a, on a case-by-case basis if we can help them. And if so, how? But it certainly is very complicated at the moment. The industry is really hurting right now and there's a lot of information about there. We've, we've gone to solicitors and appropriate medical professionals and stuff like that for our opinion on if we're allowed to operate and if so, under what constraints. So if people are interested, if people think that we can help, go ahead and email us and we'll deal with it on a case by case. But hopefully, I don't know when this comes out for you, buddy, but you know, hopefully as of like late October 2020, we'll be back to some more sane restrictions that allow people to get the help that they need with their dogs. I'm hoping to drop the podcast on about the 7th of October, Brad, but it all really revolves around, much like you, uh, about what's going to happen with our current situation. And I just pray and hope that we can stick it out and all of us come through the other side and learn a lot and become stronger for it. As you sort of stated at the outset of our chat today, but like you've got people who are like, well, we're going to be locked home, so now's a good time to get a puppy. But as we've covered, there's a lot of really whack information out there about what to do with puppy and what not to do. Now, the tr- for the vast majority of us, for the vast majority of this time that we've been in COVID lockdown, there is tons and tons that people could do to do a great job of developing their puppy. Of course, there are a few limitations around that as well. Right, but um, what we're tending to find now, myself and colleagues are seeing a massive jump in dogs with um, issues relating to anxiety and or separation-related behaviour, dogs that are struggling to be left their own. Yeah, it's, it's a bit of a minefield for folks right now. I have to say after the last three months, people who I'm dealing with in my usual job are quite anxious and uh, exhibiting high anxiety as well as their dogs. Interestingly, many of them actually did not have a pet before and perhaps didn't have a dog and they've got a German Shepherd or a Rottweiler or a Greyhound or a Mastiff. I own working type dogs. I think they can be absolutely amazing. I've given an example of where 
like that friend of mine, Tony, he's done a brilliant job. He, he understood exactly what he was getting into and he knew what to do. You've touched on the fact that there are many other breeds, right, that also deal with this. So a, a dog, so anxiety is a term that's massively thrown around, right? It can be really difficult to tell whether or not a dog is anxious and it's, believe it or not, Ed, oh, well, I know you would believe it, man, but like a lot of people, people are creatures of habit and they tend to do the same thing day in, day out, right? And so unless you're putting your dog in novel situations where the edges of its understanding are tested and you have to watch how it functions, right, and how it navigates those situations, it's very difficult to see for a lot of people that their dog is actually anxious. If you talk to a lot of people, whether they're raising puppies or they just own a pet, they'll go to the same dog park all the time, they'll go to the same one or two or three walks all the time. Sure, there are people that do a great job of, of um, varying that, but it's uh, my experience is it's most common that people don't do a lot of novel things with their dog. So it's hard for them to even see that the dog is anxious. How anxiety affects an individual dog happens on a spectrum, buddy. I, I feel silly saying this to you, Ed, because I know that you know this, but like for the people that are listening to your podcast, man, you know, um, it, it happens on a spectrum. So you can have a dog that's a little anxious, doesn't really need medication. You probably need to manage that dog properly. There may be some dietary interventions that you can make. You may have unreasonable expectations, which we can shift, and you can start to teach the dog some pro-social coping strategies, and now all of a sudden that dog just lives a better life. We work with some really, really interesting dogs here in terms of very profoundly affected dogs, dogs with bite histories, dogs which would have a bite history had they actually been exposed enough to the public, like all, all types of stuff. And it gets kind of complicated because I'm having talks with neuropsychologists and, you know, um, human anaesthetists and veterinarians and whatever else trying to learn more and more about you know, how does this drug interact with this dog and is this a potential therapy that we can sort of leverage from the human world into the dog world. Like, I don't want to make it sound like I'm um, performing brain surgery because I'm not. I'm essentially a dog trainer, right? But, like, the more complicated the problem, often the more complicated the solution is. Clearly there's a, a sudden upsurge in people that are doing training for dogs and there's a lot of new pet owners who have bought their new little pooch home. How can they be sure that they're getting the right advice? Because there is a lot of people out there at the moment. There's so much conflicting information out there that's really, really, really bad. Like you'll go to one dog trainer and the dog trainer will go, oh no, you, you have to go and see a vet because your dog needs medication. I guess you could call this dog a medium level of anxiety type dog. It's fairly affected by it. It seems to be a general thing, right? The owners see it less at home when the dog feels in control of its environment and it's predictable. But as soon as we put the dog in a fairly benign situation, you can see that this dog is experiencing some serious symptoms. But it doesn't necessarily mean that we need to run off and go and medicate that dog. Now, having said that, there's also another group of dog trainers which is sizable, that will tell you, no, you don't need to medicate your dog. You need to create your dog, do this, do that, right? So unfortunately, the voices on the left that say you need to med... Anytime a dog is anxious, you need to medicate it because it can't learn. That's a lie. 
There are many dogs that can learn and do really well if you're patient with them and you make the activity really rewarding for the dog, right? Now, a lazy owner that doesn't want to have to deal with that probably isn't going to do that work. And on the far right of the other argument, Ed, we have these people that are like, no, medications don't help dogs, right? They don't need this. They just need discipline. If your dog's doing this, just punish it and whatever else. You know, you're the boss. The dog should listen to you. What they say doesn't fit the majority of dogs. The truth is usually somewhere in the middle, right? And so even nowadays, the way that people access everything is by the internet. And the cool thing is that there's never been more information available. Where you choose to seek your advice becomes very important. I love getting like quite educated clients come in. My business attracts ten, uh, most people, uh, are, are, I would say, they're interested in a process and they're interested in seeing something through. And then you know, I, I won't tell anyone, you know, pretty much everyone I tell them, like, you know, the problem may be simple to deal with, it may not, but if it's, if, if it's, you know, you would be one of very few if it's a quick fix. Absolutely amazing information, Brad. Really appreciate your time. I'm wondering what a person such as yourself who's an animal behaviourist and a professional dog trainer would find to be a common misconception by new dog owners. A lot of people are of the opinion that they need to prevent their puppy from experiencing stress while it's young. Well, Brad, I have to say that every time I listen to you, I learn more and more. That's kind of counterintuitive when you think about it. Uh, I wish to thank you for coming in today. I've enjoyed it thoroughly, and I'm certain that the people listening to Aussie Pets podcast have enjoyed your knowledge today as well. So, Ed, you're most welcome, like... Thank you very much for having me on. Um, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, buddy, and um, I'm really honoured to be the second person that you've had on your podcast. I, I, I know how passionate you are in this area, and um, I'm sure you don't go into it, but, folks, I can assure you that as someone who's devoted about you know 17-plus years of my life to my craft, uh, Ed is someone that um, is similarly qualified in his own areas that relate to pets and pet ownership. And so not to blow too much smoke, Ed, but I, I think that what you're doing is really good. It's a great initiative and hopefully we can get, you know, good information to people and, and you know, even if we just change the lives of one or two pets because people know something that they didn't know before. Anyone that wants to know more about what we do here at CSI, um, feel free to follow our social pages. The easiest way to find them is to go to our website, which is K. Nine, so the letter K, the number nine, services, all one word, dot com, dot au. And we've got some social sharing buttons uh, on our webpage that will take you straight to our social account. Um, the two videos that I mentioned earlier are on our YouTube channel. Again, that's linked from the uh, from the uh, the website. That's the word I was looking for. Uh, I'm sure Ed will put some links to those videos I mentioned in the show notes for us and I'm sure that's, we've been talking for almost an hour now, Ed, so I reckon that's pretty much all anyone wants to hear from me, my friend. Uh, greatly appreciated that you came in today, Brad, came into the podcast and shared your knowledge with everybody. Uh, again, www.k9services.com.au. That's K for kilo, nine as in the number, 
so k9services.com.au. And for everything else, if you have a look at the podcast, you'll see all of the details for the videos that Brad has mentioned. Additionally, the people that he's mentioned, I'll put links there, and if they've got a website, you'll find that there as well. Well, we've certainly nearly gone an hour, and I haven't actually edited that much, Brad. I could listen to you for a lot longer, but uh, let's see what the listeners say. I think that I'd like to have you come back in a a couple of months, but um, I'll wait and we'll get some feedback and uh, see how we run. Again, thanks to everybody for tuning in. It's been great, absolutely massive amount of information. My brain is exploding, and I will see you later.